This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. I'm here with Mark Cuban, a man who needs little introduction. He's a billionaire, always looking to invest in something new. And trust me, I know... I follow his every move. You probably know him from the show Shark Tank, where he does just that on a day-to-day basis. Let me ask you a question. If I offered you $30 million for the company, would you take it? Um, $2 million for 20%. I'll take that offer. Done. Really? Yep. His first major investment was in online sports broadcasting. From there, he went on to buy his own basketball team, the Dallas Mavericks. As a franchise owner, he's built a reputation for not just talking about equity and inclusion, but also for taking action. As NBA teams have struggled to diversify their executive offices, Mark is proud to say his executive team is led by people of color, including Cynthia Marshall, the first black woman CEO in the league. For Mark, diversity is good business, and good business means a good payout. Here's my conversation with Mark Cuban. So, Mark, I'll kick things off this way. What is it about owning a team in Dallas that makes people so outspoken? (laughs) Break that down for me. I I don't know, but I'll tell you a quick story. Um, When I was going through the approval process way back when in in 2000, early 2000, there was a guy that worked for the New York Knicks. I won't even bring up his name. Hmm. He got to ask me questions. And it wasn't Jim Dole. And um, he goes, are you going to be like that other owner in Dallas? And remember, this is 2000. And so, you know, Jerry was just really, really, you know, making waves then. Jerry, as in Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. They had just won the three Super Bowls or whatever it was. And I was like, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that little trophy back in the background there. Give me a bunch of those and I'm a happy camper. It's not little at all, Mark. I was I actually went by you at eleven when I saw you guys celebrating that trophy. So it was a, it was a hell of an experience. I could tell you that. Yeah, I missed it. I want it again. Um, but yeah, so this is just the way I've always been, and Jerry's just always been himself too. And and actually, when I bought the team, you know, at the time I paid the highest price ever for a team, and he called me up. He's like, Mark, whenever somebody tells me that's a horrible invitation. Whenever somebody tells me that I pay too much, it's usually a good sign that I, I paid the right price. And he was right. I know you get a crazy return on your NBA team, even though I can never see you letting it go. But with the Super Bowl being on the verge this upcoming weekend, have you ever thought about buying an NFL team? And if you could buy an NFL team, who would you buy and why? Yeah, I thought about it initially. Um, and then I had kids. And it's really, you know, and it wasn't even having the kids. It was as my kids got older, when they were real young, little babies, I thought, okay, it was no big deal because mom spent most of the time coddling them. And, you know, mm. they, they were mama's kids. And I thought, okay, I can handle both. And then when they got to be eight, nine, 10 years old, my oldest, it was like, okay, you know, maybe that'd be a mistake to buy another team. And so, yeah, I looked at it. If I were going to buy a team, it'd be the Steelers because that's, that's where I grew up. Oh, the Rooney family and Mark Cuban coming together to make a big-time deal. They do need a new quarterback coming up. Yeah, you know, 
I don't think no matter what price I pay, it's going to be tough <laughs> to, to replace Big Ben. Hey, um, one of the questions I really wanted to talk to you about on a serious note is Brian Flores was on my podcast last week talking about the alleged racial discrimination in NFL hiring practices. And of the NFL teams, you know, there are only four coaches of color. But when you look at the NBA of the 30 teams, you've got 14 head coaches of color. From your position, what do you see the NBA doing differently than the NFL? Honestly, I don't know. I, I can tell you this. Hiring a coach is the hardest thing to do in all of sports because they all know the exact right things to say when they come in an interview. You know, when you walk in the door as a prospective head coach for I'm assuming it's the same in the NFL. They, they know everything that's wrong with your team and they can tell you exactly what they would do and how they would fix it. And you mm-hmm. you've been around enough coaches. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so you have to start digging in to you know, figure out, is it more, is there more to it than the X's and O's? And, you know, with, with football, there's 53 players and the organization, the staffs are dramatically bigger than an NBA team. But I'm presuming that there's just as many qualified African-American or people of color as candidates. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got to look a little bit further and, you know, broaden your search because, you know, I've always been of the attitude that, in, in all my businesses that, you know, you sometimes you often get better results if you're looking where other people are not. Mm-hmm. And when other people are being dismissive of a group of people or doing things the way it's always been done, that that creates a, a, a great opportunity. You know, with the Mavs, I've only hired three coaches in my tenure. You know, Avery Johnson, who is African-American, Rick Carlisle, who's white, and Jason Kidd, who's um, African-American. And, and so, you know, and each one of them was hired for a different reason. You know, Avery had championship experience with the Spurs and he was very discipline oriented and to the point and very direct. And I thought that's what we needed. Rick Carlisle was more of an in-game chess player. And I and I thought of all the candidates available, that was what we needed. Hmm. And now, you know, from when you um, came in to the league, players have changed, you know, multiple times. Right. You know. Yep. When, when you were coming in, it was still more old school and it was, you know, these are the, the rules and this is the way guys and you have your vets were hard asses. And it was you don't you know, you're not friends with guys on the other team. And then it changed a little bit to like the 2010s and then social media picked up. And now everybody follows everybody and everybody's friends and everybody's a brand and a 19 or 20 or 21 year old kid coming into the NBA. Coaching them is a totally different approach than coaching, you know, the the rookie of the 2010 season or rookie of the 2000 season. And so this time I looked for somebody who was more into teaching, more into personal relationships um, than I might have otherwise hired in in the past. And so, you know, I don't know how that correlates to the NFL, but I, I, I would be willing to bet that their young players are completely different today than they were 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And probably the hiring process is different. I know one of your lines has always been diversity makes for better business overall, which it does. Um, what are your thoughts on the Brian Flores situation in general, Mark? You know, as a fan of the NFL from the outside looking in, you win seven straight games or whatever it was and and turn a team around. I, I was kind of surprised when he got fired. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I will say this. One of the biggest differences between the NFL and the NBA, in my mind, is that the NFL is and I've talked to NFL players who say it's about the shield, 
right? It's about the logo of the NFL. You don't really have visibility for the players themselves. If there's 52 players on the roster of the Cowboys or the Steelers and 49 of them walked in the door, if it wasn't for Dak and, um, you know, Ben and some, you know, the running backs maybe and a wide receiver, you're not going to recognize any of the players other than acknowledging they're huge, right? Whereas with the NBA, particularly because of video games, you know, kids can recognize and acknowledge 15 out of 15 players, maybe, you know, even the two-way players. Mm. And so it's just different. And so I think the NBA is more of a talent-driven league. You know, our, our players have more of a social impact for the most part. Our players are bigger social media brands. And that makes a huge difference because how you deal with somebody who is a face of not only of your team, but of the league, it's just different. And how, and I think that also influences how hiring takes place. I got to ask you a question about hiring because you hired Cynthia Marshall as your CEO. Was there intent on hiring somebody that was diverse that would bring, you know, a, a different mindset to how you ran your organization? For sure. Right. I mean, you know, we went through a lot of issues and, you know, the person who was our CEO that was at the helm when we ran into these issues was African-American. So it wasn't just about being African-American, but it was being able to manage a diverse workforce and not only manage them, but be able to go out there and find great people that, you know, made our business better while also increasing diversity and inclusion, right? Because they can't be mutually exclusive. They have to go hand in hand. You have to recognize that, you know, just checking off boxes is useless. But if you're able to go out there and, you know, find people that other organizations can't find that do a better job for you and, and improve your business, that's the real talent. And that's what we saw in Scent. I also feel, Mark, that you do a great job of actually listening because I know a few years back, uh, you listened to a lot of black players in the NBA when they were protesting the national anthem, and you made a decision to stop playing it at all Mavericks games. So what advice would you have for owners in the NFL on how best to listen to some of the allegations revolving around Brian Flores? Look, as much as any of us think we're you know, still 25 years old on the inside, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> you know, the world changes, culture changes, attitudes change. You know, just in, in our lifetimes, the attitudes towards gay marriage, towards marijuana, just, you know, towards, you know, interracial couples, biracial couples just change night and day. I mean, I remember growing up in, in Pittsburgh and just having some neighbors that were just so incredibly racist. And, you know, you just don't it's just changed. And so you've got to open up. I think I have to I don't want to speak for other owners in the NFL, but I think I had to recognize where. I wasn't as open-minded or I, I had to make sure I checked my prejudices at the door, right? And catch myself because nobody's perfect, right? You've got to recognize that as much as your heart or your intents in the right place, you're not going to get it a hundred percent right. And, and you've got to listen and you've got to ask for help and you've got to listen to that help. How do you get more diversity and ownership, Mark? Like how does that work for the NBA? Cause that seems like it's an ongoing challenge. Yeah, you know, and diversity in the NBA now and the NFL will evolve and change simply because the price of teams has gotten so expensive. It's really unusual for one person to be able to write the check like I did 22 years ago. You know, when a team is going for two, three, four billion dollars, you know, you can borrow some money against your assets. I get if you're if you're super wealthy, but 
there's maybe 10 people now who can write a check for an NFL franchise and, and still be able to afford to operate it, you know? Mm. And so, and the point there is that you're seeing a lot more ownership groups and those ownership groups have enabled um, a lot more diversity. I can't speak for the NFL, but you know, you've got Vivek in Sacramento, you've got, um, you know, Golden State has got diversity in their ownership group. Pretty much any newly acquired team that has a large ownership ownership group has got some level of diversity in it. All right, guys, we're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, a lot more from my good friend, Mark Cuban. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. You know, um, one of the labels I've heard used to describe you when you were younger was that of a, a hustler, right? Some people say, oh, like door-to-door salesman. I'm curious, what, what do you think of Mark Cuban when he was younger, back when he was at his startup times and a lot of these uh, companies that you were getting off the ground and kind of raising your profile? You know that song by Nipsey Hussle, right? Grinding all my life, that was all me. All my life. Yeah, that was me, right? From the, as long as I can remember, literally, I, I had hustles, not even side hustles. They were real hustles all the way through. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just, that's who I was from selling baseball cards, um, down in the park to, um, you know, selling garbage bags, door to door magazines, door to door, selling one of the kids selling candies, you know, you always, you always see the kids selling the chocolate bars, but I learned so much. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, walking up to a door, Hi, Mr. Williams. What would you like? Mr. Williams, <laughs> if I told you that for 75 cents a week, I could help you educate your children so they can do better in school, would that be worth it to you? Yes. Then let me help you pick three magazines from this list of 20 magazines. <laughs> that's incredible. That's so good. <laughs> right? And, th- and that's, at that time, 15 or 16-year-old Mark. How did you even come up with those type of scenarios, Mark? Like, how, it just Did you think them through or were things more innate to you? Look, I learned when I was a kid that selling wasn't, you know, convincing somebody, okay, selling ice to Eskimos, that type of thing, right? It was about helping somebody. Look, you know, Mr. Williams, isn't 
the education of your family, your children, the most important thing in the world to you, mm. 75 cents a week. Brilliant. Tap into that emotional part of the person. Yes. And, so it's, and when I came to the Mavericks, I had to make everybody in the NBA realize we don't sell basketball. We sell experiences. Mm. You know, I remember being in owners meetings, you know, no, 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 that, you know, no, no. Think about the games you've gone to in your life. Do you remember the score? Do you remember the jump shots? Do you remember the dunks? No, you remember who you were with. You remember the first time a parent or a relative took you to a game. You remember that time you were with your buddy on his bachelor party and he threw up on the person in front of him. You remember, you know, walking out of the arena when somebody hit a game winning shot, screaming and yelling. It's the only place you're going to high five somebody or hug somebody you've never met before or cry on the shoulder of somebody you've never met before, depending on what happened at the end of a game. You know, you've got to learn what you're selling and then recognize what the value proposition is to the people who are going to be buying. And in sports, it's emotion, it's experiences. So you, you, you hustled, you obviously, you were chasing the American dream. When you look at the American dream now, do you think the working class person can do today what you did back then? Yeah, I do. I really do. That's why I do Shark Tank, to just Friday nights on ABC. Um, to let everybody- Great plug, great plug. Yeah. To let everybody know that it's possible that the people that walk on the carpet in Shark Tank aren't from wealthy families. Ninety nine percent of the time, they probably came someplace that you came from, you know, and, and it's very similar and, and from all kinds of, of backgrounds. And so we really want to show that the American dream truly is alive and well. Now, does everybody have an equal opportunity or the same path? No. Do some people have it far more difficult? Absolutely. You know, but on the flip side, you know, those are where some of the best opportunities are because that's where nobody else is looking. So, Mark, explain this to me because it's one of the challenges I'm having now in my life. There's so many opportunities. I have this incredible podcast, The Limits, here on NPR. Uh, I work on TV. I'm also producing content. I have businesses I'm invested in. You have three amazing kids, Alexis, Alyssa, and Jake. How did you, how, how did you do all that, accomplish all that hustle while also being a father? I wasn't. I waited. You know, I knew that I would not be able to handle it when I was just getting going. You know, I had one. I remember breaking up with a girlfriend. It was like she wanted the white picket fence in the house. And I was like, no, you know, you knew this when you started dating me that I was on a mission to retire. And I wanted, you know, my dad was always, you know, the one asset you can ever get back. You can't ever own his time. And to me, you know, busting my ass wasn't about having more money than everybody else. It was really about how much money can, what does it take to get me to the point where I'm not responsible to anybody else, that I get to control my own time. And it was only then when I got to that point that I really started to, you know, focus on family. So how do you keep everybody grounded? Because obviously you're doing some incredible things. You're on TV, big personality. You're the owner of an NBA franchise that the evaluation goes up and up and up. How do you keep your kids grounded to have the same kind of spirit or hustle that you had when you were younger? <laughs> or maybe you don't. I, I'm asking for myself, Mark. That's Not that I'm in your position, but I'm like, how do I keep my kids hungry? You know what I mean? You just hope and pray. You know, my, my wife and I really try to you know, be as normal as possible. You know, we don't have butlers and maids. We have housekeepers, but we don't have butlers and maids. And we make dinner and I make my own dinner. I don't have somebody cook it all for me. And I have a, I have a dietitian that makes some of my stuff. So I, um, but like, <laughs> you see this little thing of Cheerios? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, and then my list of cookies. And so, yeah, so we really try to act as normally as possible, take our kids, go to their games, you know, and, you know, they're not stupid, right? They see, you know, they fly a private, they're not, you know, sometimes we'll fly commercial, but so they recognize and their, their friends say something. So we, we have conversations with them and it doesn't always work. My oldest in particular gets a little bit caught up in herself, but, um, but that's part of being an 18, an 18 year old high school senior, you know? Mark's interest in equity extends well beyond his MBA team. After the break, how his latest venture in healthcare is making prescription medication more affordable for everyday Americans. You're listening to The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. I want to talk about the difference between you and what's happening in the pharma industry right now, because I know a couple of weeks ago, you launched an online pharmacy called the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs Company. You say you started the business because of the cold email pitch from a radiologist. Now the CEO of your new company, what was it? What was the compelling pitch? I've been working on healthcare research and different issues probably for the last going on five years now. And because of that, Alex um, Oshmiaski sent me a cold email talking about things he was doing in Denver with a a compounding pharmacy. And I I asked him a simple question, really, because this is when the whole farmer bro thing was was going down. And I was like, look, if this guy can jack up the prices 750% for life-saving medicines, can we go the opposite direction? Mm. Can we cut the pricing? And are there inefficiencies in this industry that allow us to do it and really make a difference? And he was like, yes. I was like, well, let's do it. And and so we basically created a vertically integrated um, manufacturing company that will start with generic drugs. And traditionally, the reason there are so many price distortions with generic drugs um, is because there's this thing called pharmacy benefit managers. And what pharmacy benefit managers, they're like bouncers at a club. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that say, hey, I'm controlling access to all the big insurance companies. And if you want this insurance company to sell your drug, you got to pay the cover charge. And so all these drugs pay the cover charge to these PBMs through the through rebates. 
And because they're paying the cover charges, they, the prices are jacked up. Well, we said, we're going to create our own pharmacy benefit manager. We're going to work directly with the manufacturers and we're not going to charge the cover charge. And so we're able to sell the drugs that we have access to and soon the drugs that we'll manufacture for cost plus 15%. So while everybody else is playing that game of, okay, how do I, you know, how do I take from left pocket to right pocket or this person to give me money or that person to give me money and then, you know, make it look like I'm selling for the lowest price, but putting more in my pocket, we changed that whole game. People always ask, well, why didn't somebody do this before? And the reality is there's so much money there, it's hard not to be greedy. It really is because if you get to any scale at all, those PBMs are going to start throwing money at you and saying, look, just play the game. And, you know, it's almost like NBA free agency. Yeah, I love the team and you guys brought me into the league, but they're offering me max and you're offering me $5 million less. Hmm. I love you, but here I come, right? And so it's the same in business where in the pharma industry where, you know, if they offer you all this money, it's rare that someone's going to say no. That's crazy because I know pharmaceutical companies, Mark, receive billions of taxpaying dollars, right, to create and market new drugs. They do that all the time, and they sell these drugs back to the American people for steep prices. You've already made mention of that. I know Joe Biden tries to address this through his Build Back Better plan, uh, but he can't get Democrats to all agree on it. Can you bring those prices down by disrupting the industry? Absolutely, 100%. Now, people always ask about insulin because that's kind of the poster child for people having problems affording their medication. And with insulin, it takes a whole process to create something called a biosimilar. And that takes multiple years. So it's something we're looking at, but it's not something that can happen quickly. And look, I'll, I'll say this. The, some of the pharma manufacturers are caught between a rock and a hard place, and meaning that they want to be able to sell for the lowest price to consumers, but they can't just go sell to directly to consumers. So they have to work through these pharmacy benefit managers because, if, you know, Synthroid is a brand name. So if Synthroid doesn't work through a pharmacy benefit manager who represents an insurance company, Synthroid won't be on that insurance company's list of approved medications. And so they've got to play the game in order to be able to sell unless we get big enough. Right. But they're working. A lot of those are work companies. Pharma companies are working through us and very quietly saying to us, thank you, because they might sell to us for a dollar ten and sell to the big far, um, PBM for ninety nine or ninety cents, let's say. But because of all the rebates, the end price to a consumer might be ten dollars or twenty dollars. We'll pay our our dollar ten or whatever and mark it up 15 percent, charge you a three dollar pharmacy fee that we pay the pharmacist that we work with and $5 for shipping. And that's it. That's it. There's no other added cost. And so the, the manufacturers actually love what we're doing for that reason. <laughs> You're always thinking outside the box, Mark. I, I give you that. You always think about how you can disrupt and make things more simplistic for people. Uh, I do want to go to something that you said before about Joe Biden that I found to be fascinating. You gave him a B recently for his performance, and you said he lacked enthusiasm. Can you can you break down, almost give me a scouting report by what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I said enthusiasm and charisma. You know, uh, it takes – it's hard to stand out in media these days. I mean, you're on the media. You know what it takes just to, to keep it rolling, right? You look at the numbers, and you try to correlate – you know, what you did with what got a response and because everybody wants to be a little bit smarter about how they communicate. 
In a social media world for a politician, it's even more difficult. You know, you had President Obama, who was a great orator and very charismatic. Love or hate Donald Trump, he was very charismatic. Joe Biden, he can communicate. He know, you know, he can get a message across, but he's not charismatic. And there's nobody else in the administration that fills that role. There's nobody that when they speak for the administration, your eyes are just glued to the screen saying, oh, my God, what are they going to say next? And to me, in this social media world, that's a necessity. You have to be able to do that. And, you know, it's not meant to take anything away from his policies. Some I like, some I dislike, you know, but at the same time, you have to be cognizant. It's like we're going back to the NFL, right? There's the shield versus the players, right? The shield is the charisma in a lot of respect. I mean, look, big Ben, huge fan, right? Dak, huge fan. Patrick Mahomes, Mavs fan, huge fan, right? But none of them, you don't look at them on the TV or look at them in a stream when they're speaking and say, oh my God, what's, you know, what do you do? If you ever run for office, I'm going to vote for you. You know, there's nobody like that in the administration. And that it's unfortunate in a lot of respect that it's not just about policy. It's not just about helping people, but it's how you communicate it, that, but it's just a reality. And I think, you know, going forward, any candidate needs to have that. But wait, Mark, I, I feel like, I think I know somebody no. that has that. Mark, <laughs> no. Mark, I think I know somebody. Oh, come on, man, Mark, you're socially liberal, yet you're fiscally conservative. You built a ton of great businesses, right? You, you understand uh, balance sheets and how that needs to work with our American financial system. I know you flirted with running for it before. Let me ask you this question, because I'm not going to ask you that. Do you think you would have what it took to be the president of the United States of America? Seriously, yeah, man. Of course. Um, well, I shouldn't say of course. You never know until you You can know. say of course, Mark. That's what makes you Mark. No, because you never know until you know, right? It's not. It's the hardest job in the world. And so I'm not going to be that arrogant. Um, but at the same time, relative to anybody else, I think I can do. I could do the job, but I would never put my family through that. You know, as much as charisma is important to getting elected, the whole process is the worst thing possible for a family. You, you know, you, you literally have to disregard unless you have like my kids are 12, 15 and 18. And so unless you're willing to disregard their mental health, you know, at that age, valid point, you, you can't do it. You, you just can't do it because any mistake I've ever made in my life is going to be amplified 100,000 times. And let's just say, you know, I had fun in the 80s and the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Understood. Uh, well, how about role play with me for a second? Sure. So if Mark Cuban were to run for president, I know you just said that you wouldn't. But if you were to just run for president, what party do you think would give you their nomination? Neither. And the best odds to win? Neither. I mean, literally – you would have to go through the process of recognizing that the two parties are part of the problem um, and, and maybe the whole problem. And so you would have to put it out there um, and say, look, I need five Republican incumbents who are not up for election. I need five Democratic incumbents who are not up for election in the Senate. And let's say 10 in the House. I need all of you to join me in either a new party or a new independent coalition to work together and run together because 
and it won't happen, you know, so it's pie in the sky. But if you were to take five senators from each side, you've eliminated any possibility for a majority for either side in the next election. So that means everybody's got to work together at some level. You know, I'd also push for ranked choice voting because it, you know, the way our primary system works right now, not everybody votes in the primary. And so it's mostly the people who are you're pushing for the most extreme legislation that vote in the primaries and donate money. And so in order not to get primaried, anybody who's running for election from the Republican or Democratic Party has to appease the most extreme primary voters because they're the ones who vote and give money. Mm-hmm. And ranked choice voting eliminates that. And if, you know, if you are into politics and you watch like Lisa Murkowski and Joe Manchin, you know, um, on the shows on Sunday, you, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, they do ranked choice voting. If you look at Eric Adams, the new mayor of New York, where there's ranked choice voting, they're willing to take less popular with their base positions because they know that they're not going to get primaried in the same way that maybe some of their colleagues might in traditional voting. So there's a lot of things that have to change in the system in order for anybody to come in that's outside the Republic or Democratic Party. Could you explain to me, Mark, what it means in today's climate to be a moderate conservative? Are there are there moderate conservatives in today's I, climate anymore? You know, just just labeling to me, just uh, when people talk in general terms, whether it's conservative, moderate, conservative, liberal, you know, moderate, you know, Democrat, progressive, that that's part of the problem. And, you know, because we don't say, OK, Jay, what do you think? Mark, hmm. what do you think? Right. It's OK. We, we kind of generalize what group are you in so we can try to understand who you are as opposed to just take your own position. Just do what you think is right as opposed to bandwagoning everything. You know, because people want to join, you know, be part of a tribe as opposed to talk about what's solving a problem. And, you know, the the more you identify people, identify people's tribe, if you will, their group, then the the more you make that important over the actual policy or idea or promise or business. And so, you know, that, again, is why if I had a choice, I would just get rid of political parties. Boom. To me, one of the most patriotic things you can do after getting vaccinated is just disjoint or leave the whatever um, political party that you're donating money to or affiliated with. And just being independent, just make your own decisions. Be yourself. You know, just whatever is important to Mark, whatever is important to Jay, whatever is important to John, whatever is important to Sally. Don't, you know, hey, I'm a conservative or hey, I'm a Democrat or hey, I'm, I'm a progressive. Those labels are what get us in trouble. I, I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity, since this is the first time you and I are truly kicking it to, with each other. I would like for you to be my guest to come to the last Duke, North Carolina game that Coach K will ever coach at Cameron Indoor Stadium. So I just want to say there's oh, an open man. invite to you, Mark. If you want to bring Jack, you want to bring your son, I will be there. Her Barack Obama is going to be there. It's going oh. to be an absurd kind of night. I just want to put that on the plate for you. I don't know if I could ever walk away from a Mavs game, Jay, but I might have to take you up on that because that will be a legendary night. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it, man. I know you're crazy busy. Thanks a lot. That was tech mogul, Dallas Mavericks owner, and billionaire entrepreneur, Mark Cuban. Thanks to Mark and his entire team for making this happen. It was an absolute pleasure having you on my show. The Limits is produced by Karen Kinney, Mano Sundarason, Lena Sunsgeri, Barton Girdwood, Brent Bachman, Rachel Neal, Yolanda Sanguini, 
Our executive producer is Anya Grunman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Charlotte Riggi and Aaron Register. Let's keep it moving and remember, stay positive. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm agents can help you create a personalized plan that fits your business needs and budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. NPR.